God's word would draw, convict, that it would give life and fill. And uh, so go ahead and get your Bibles out and let's get right to the word and let it do that very thing. And uh, Mark 9, Mark 9 is where we're at uh, this morning. And as you're turning to Mark 9, we come to uh, what is honestly a a very unique uh, event in the scriptures. And it's that of Jesus' transfiguration. And uh, very very few events in the scripture look something like what we see here uh, this morning. And I think really what Jesus is doing is is for the disciples. He's giving them this glimpse. He's giving them this, this, this foretaste of his glory, of the future glory that, that will be his, but will also be ours, uh, that we will share with him uh, one day. And uh, the title of the message this morning is A Foretaste of Future Glory. And, and this idea where this, this glimpse, this, this little peek, this sneak behind the curtain, so to speak, of what eternity holds, of what eternity holds uh, for us, uh, more specifically what eternity holds with respect to Jesus and his person and his glory and what you and I will uh, share and experience and enjoy for all of eternity with him. And I'll, I'll tell you here at the outset, a, a passage like this, it'd be easy to get real heady uh, real intellectual, real theological uh, in a text like this. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a wrong thing. But inasmuch as the transfiguration really speaks to a lot of these bigger, broader, very uh, intense theological things, I think there's a lot of uh, real life, a lot of application, a lot of God's truth uh, that shows up on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning or in between uh, the, the, the sidelines, if you will, of the week uh, that speaks into this. And really my heart, my desire for us this morning is that as we move through this text, that what God would stir up in, inside of us would be a longing, would be a desire for the permanence of the glory of God. That we would not be satisfied with these little sneak peeks, with these little glimpses, these little pieces, but that we would long for the fullness and the, co- the consummation of the glory of Jesus uh, in, in eternity, but even now where we would long and press for that. And so really the theme, the, the nail uh, where we're going this morning is this, is that in glimpsing Jesus' glory, we would long for the fullness of his glory that we would have a heart for eternity, but that heart for eternity would be, would be, be tied uh, specifically to the person of God, to the person of Jesus. So God help us, right? God help us that we would long to see the fullness of your glory and be changed by it. Well, so let's read. Let's read the text where we'll spend uh, the remainder of our time here this morning, and uh, then we'll pray and begin to walk through it, starting in uh, Mark 9, uh, verse 2. And I'm going to read through verse 13. I encourage you to read along with me. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Why don't you join me and pray with me that God would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of his word here this morning. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, uh, God, we would ask that you would um, do the work that only you could do. Uh, God, that in humble submission and surrender before you, we would ask that you would open your word to us. God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, hearts that are, that are willing to, to respond to whatever it is that you call us to. God, we would ask that your spirit would be actively at work in and amongst your people here this morning at Faith Church. But God, not only for us, as is, as is our custom, we, <clears throat> we pray for another church in the area. And God, I pray for Pastor Carlos Griegos and for redemption. God, I pray for Los that as he's preaching this morning, God, that you would be at work uh, in and through him. Uh, that your spirit would powerfully move through that body of believers and enable them to live uh, in a manner that is pleasing to you, that brings glory and honor to you, that makes much of you. And God, for us, God, we would just ask that you would have your way with us as we look at this passage of your transfiguration, as, we, as we're reminded of the glory that, that belongs to you and you alone. God, would you give us a heart for that, a desire for that, a passion for that, a fire for that? God, would we live for that? Would it be something that you would stir up within us and that you would be lifted high in all things? So Jesus, have your way amongst us now. Do the work that only you can do. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, two things, two things I want us to see this morning in the text, this foretaste of future glory. And, and really it's tied to, if you notice the structure of the text, you have two very distinct scenes. In verses 2 through 8, you have this scene where Jesus is on the mountain with these three disciples and, and, and he's transfigured before them and, and God speaks and Moses and Elijah shows up. It's a pretty, pretty dramatic scene, honestly. And it's unmistakable that the glory of, of God, specifically the glory of Jesus, is, is what that particular scene or that particular uh, part of the text is about. And then you have verses 9 through 13. And can you imagine them coming off the mountain, the disciples having just seen that? And Jesus' first thing to them is, hey, don't say anything to anyone about what you saw until I've risen from the dead. And those guys have to be like, wait, wait, we can't share this with anyone? And then in verse 10, we see they don't fully understand who Jesus is because they're questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're still not fully aware of the reality. And here's really what the second part is about. That Jesus must suffer before he's to enter into glory. Okay, the, 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 and so in these two scenes, we see glory and we see suffering. Now, now, make no mistake, the entirety of this text is ultimately about the glory of God. But suffering is the road that is traveled. It's the vehicle that's used that will bring us to glory. And in the same way that Jesus will travel down this road of suffering prior to glory, you and I will travel down that same road of suffering prior to the glory that we will experience with him in eternity. 
And so understanding those two concepts or those two aspects here in the text, let's press in here on this first scene. And I just wrote this down uh, for verses 2 through 8. Behold the glory of Jesus. And it's stated as an imperative that you and I would in fact do that, that we would behold the glory of Jesus. Because what's undeniable here is the glory of Jesus is on display. But notice Peter's response in verse 5 and 6 is, is he doesn't quite get it. He reverts back to some of his old ways here. He doesn't fully understand what's going on. And so really by, by way of application in a moment when we get to that particular part of the text, we don't want to do the same things uh, that Peter did. We want to fully behold uh, the glory of Jesus. And so notice four things specific to that in verse 2 and 3. Notice this first of all that Jesus reveals his glory. That Jesus reveals his glory. He takes Peter, James, and John. They climb up this mountain. Why he took these three and not the other nine, uh, we don't know for sure. Suffice to say, he's got these three guys. They're up on a mountain, and he transfigures himself. Now, the word transfigure, uh, the Greek word there, tell me if this sounds like maybe a word you might be uh, familiar with. It's metamorpho. Sound like anything? Like metamorphosis. I don't know why. I always think of butterflies when I think of metamorphosis. All right? But it's to change. It's to be transformed. It's to be changed. And, and uh, in the scriptures, sometimes it's, it's physical. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's internal. Sometimes it's external. What Mark tells us is that Jesus is transfigured. And then the only tangible piece that he gives us with respect to that is what we see in verse 3, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so what we know from a tangible physical perspective in verse 3 is, is that it got really bright for a little while. That's really all that we know about the transfiguration. Suffice to say that he wouldn't use that word if something dramatic hadn't happened. Jesus revealing his glory. He's giving the disciples here. He's peeling back the curtain. He's giving them a peek. But I think Jesus' revelation of his glory here gets at a fundamental piece of your and I existence. See, because you and I were created for glory. Do you know that? Do you know that you were created for glory, that I was created for glory? But more specifically, we were created specifically for God's glory. That is the reason that you and I exist in, in bearing his image and in being part of building his kingdom that, that we attribute, we credit, we make known, we point to, we proclaim, we profess the supremacy, the glory, the greatness of God. We're his messengers in this. And so Jesus on this mountain, okay, here, here's what did not happen is Jesus and the 12 weren't twiddling their thumbs and like, well, we got nothing better to do. And Jesus is like, hey, you three, come here. And like a group of teenage boys uh, haul off into the woods to fire off some firecrackers because they got nothing better to do. Okay, this isn't some form of entertainment. This isn't instructional or informational. This is Jesus going, you need to see something because I want to point you to something greater than yourself. And so he gives them this, this glimpse, this peace now, when we think about this, and we think about the glory that was revealed here, and we think about Jesus using that to point us to something greater than ourselves, the question that begs to be asked of each and every one of us is the primary purpose of my life the expansion of God's glory, or is it the expansion of my glory? 
is the primary function, is the primary purpose of my life to make more of God or is it to make more of myself? So just ask yourself in this way, in, in, in the way that I work, in the way that I think, in the way that I talk, in the way that I spend my time, in the way that I spend my resources and uh, my talents and my intellect and my finances and, and all the resources that God has entrusted me in all these ways and so many others, do I leverage those towards the expanse of the glory of God or towards the expanse of the glory of Mike, or whatever your name might be. See, who is it? Because all of us, every single one of us, we live in a manner, we live in a way um, where we are pushing towards making someone or something great. And so the question for each of us is, who is that person that we are pushing to make great? Is it God or is it myself Jesus, in revealing his glory, points to the fact that it should, in fact, be a God. And so you might go, okay, how? How is it, how is it that in a daily life, in the mundane of my life, how is it that I live for the glory of God and not for myself? We could talk about a number of things here. Let me give you just two really simple ways that I think might be helpful, at least that I found to be helpful in this. First of all is you have to credit God with what he's done. You have to credit him with what he's done in your life. You have to credit him with what he's doing in other people's life. You have to credit him in what's going on around you. You have to simply take stock in the fact of all that God is doing. That you're pointing people to him. That you credit God with what he's done. And so on one side that I'm clear that I direct things to God. On the other side when it comes to you and I. Here's a second thing that I just wrote down. I said this, that we would praise God for compliments. And here's what I mean by that, is that um, when people compliment you, when they say something positive about you, when they uh, point to something good that you've done, that in your heart and in your mind, and most of the time that's where it's going to be, it's going to be an internal thing, that you direct that glory to God. So at work, Man, Alan, you killed that. You, you killed that presentation and the partners are going to love it and we're so thrilled about where this is going to go. God, thank you. God, thank you that you gave the right words. God, thank you that you moved and worked in that way. God, thank you for a favor. You see, you see what that's about? It's not about me, it's about God. And so when you're parenting, man, you guys, you're, you're such a great parent. God, thank you that you're the perfect parent that you walk with me in my failures, that, that, that you're so gracious and forgiving, that, that, that you move us. You, you see the difference there? Part of the glory of God is understanding that in everything, it's ultimately him that's at work that empowers us to do these things. And so we just transfer the glory, so to speak. Those are some of a number of ways that we just begin to do that. Jesus revealing his glory. God help us, right? That, that what we would do is that we would live for his glory. And as he's revealing himself to these guys, he's showing them, listen, there's something greater than yourselves here. Speaking of something greater than themselves, notice verse 4. Apparently, in the process of Jesus being transfigured, transfigured these, uh, some other guys show up, and it's not just anybody. These, are, these guys are kind of a big deal. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but when, when I read this, I have all kinds of questions that start coming to my mind. Like, first of all, how did they show up? I mean, they just like, poof, they appeared, or they like walked over, or they come up over the backside of the mountain, or how did they show up? And then, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Like, how did they know? They, they got a name tag on? 
Like, is Jesus introducing them? I, like, how do they? But they know, right? And, and then here's the thing that I really want to know. What are Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking about? Right? I mean, it's like they, they go over and so the disciples see like Jesus is transfigured and then Moses and Elijah show up and, and it's just kind of like, hey, they're, they're like, who knows what they're talking about? But can you imagine the disciples? You're already shocked. You've watched Jesus do this. And now there's Moses and Elijah and they're talking with him. And maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. Maybe they heard, maybe they didn't. We don't know. But for me, there's more questions than answers in terms of verse 4. But the big questions are the ones that are answered. Because the other question that I think that begs to be asked is, why these two? I mean, of all the people that could have shown up, why these two? And there's lots of explanations as to why these two. Some people will point to, in Moses and Elijah, you really have the whole of the law and the prophets. And Moses and Elijah, you have these heroic figures who faithfully obeyed God's uh, will uh, in their time on earth. And, and no doubt that's, uh, that, that's uh, at play as well. And I think those are, are part of why we see these guys. But loved ones, remember, any time, doesn't matter where you are in the scriptures, the entirety of the scriptures are about God. And they point us to God. And so I think the reason that Moses and Elijah are here are specifically for that reason is they want to point the apostles back to God. And ironically enough, these were two guys who in very prominent forms and in prominent fashions in the Old Testament did just that. If you start with Elijah, uh, you can't help but think of Elijah and go back to Malachi 4. And in Malachi 4, it talks about the great day of the Lord will come. Elijah will come with the great day of the Lord. He's going to come back and he's going to prepare them and he's going to restore them. And in anyone in that day and age, if they heard or thought of Elijah, they're thinking of God and the great day of the Lord and his coming. See, because Elijah pointed to someone that was greater. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 did the same thing. He told the people of Israel, he said, uh, one is coming, a prophet who is coming, and he's greater than me. It is to him to whom you shall listen to. Which sounds an awful lot like what God is going to say here in a moment, isn't it? And see, both of these guys, I think ultimately the reason that they're here is they are pointing to him. They are pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to someone greater. And Jesus revealing his glory and these guys pointing, he's greater, he's greater, which then comes to this next thing we see in verse 5 and 6. And I just wrote down uh, this, uh, our response to his glory. Because what we see in verse 5 and 6 is, is the disciples' response. Now Peter's the one who speaks. I think James and John are too afraid to speak. Maybe that wasn't the worst thing because what Peter says isn't exactly uh, hitting the mark, so to speak. But we see their response. And in their response, and maybe in some of their failures in their response, the way I want us to look at this is, is take their response, and I think it's appropriate for us to respond to God's glory, but <clears throat> to respond differently, to, to use this and to respond appropriately. And so Jesus shows up, he's transfigured, Moses and Elijah comes, and then Peter, Peter's got some great moments. And Peter's got some of the biggest failures in all the scriptures, doesn't he? Man, it's like feast or famine with this guy. And um, I mean, in fairness to Peter, you, you ever been in a situation where something really dramatic happens or, 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 or something, um, maybe there's some kind of tragedy or something really difficult happens and you just don't know what to say? Been there? Come on, raise your hand if you've ever been there. Here's what comes out of your mouth when, you, when, when you're there. If something comes out of your mouth, most likely it's something stupid, Okay. 
foolishness tends to flow. Silence is your best bet. If you don't know what to say, just don't say anything. Trust me, okay? And uh, Peter uh, would have been uh, best off to probably say nothing. But notice what he says. A couple of things that he says here that I think are really interesting. He says, Rabbi. Rabbi. Now, in one, in one vein, that's a fair statement. That's what they would have, how they would have referred to Jesus. He's the teacher, right? That, that was a common name for him. But what's unfolded here in the last uh, handful of verses? Well, if you go back to 831, or a little bit before, sorry, 829, Peter's confessed him as the Christ. A little bit more than a rabbi. In 838, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man, and he's referring to himself. He was just transfigured. Is it fair to say that rabbi is an insufficient title at this point in time? He's missing it. Further, he goes on and he says this. Here's the one thing he says that that I think we can agree on, or at least at some level. It's good that we are here. Now, if he's saying it's good that we're here because this is awesome and amazing, then it's true. Now, if he's saying it's good that we're here because, hey, we can help you, then again, he's failed. And then he says this, let us make three tents One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. See, I think one of the ways that Peter failed is that he put Jesus on the same plane with Moses and Elijah. And one of the ways that we're to respond to his glory is that we're to elevate Jesus above all others. We're to elevate him above all others. Rabbi is a massively insufficient term uh, here. Uh, Three booths, Moses and Elijah weren't transfigured. And they're not there as peers with Jesus. Jesus stands alone in this, in this scenario. And our response to God's glory has to be rooted in the fact that God is in fact God. That he is greater and higher than all others. That we would come to the place as the psalmist says, what God is great like our God. That he's supreme over all. We would make Jesus greater in our life, that he would be elevated in our life. How? How do we elevate Jesus? Here's three ways, three simple ways to begin to elevate Jesus in your life. First of all, you've got to surrender to him. You've got to surrender to him. He has to, in fact, be God of your life. He can't kind of be your boss. He can't sometimes be your manager. He has to be God. He has to be supreme over all things in your life. You got to surrender to him. Secondly, this one might feel like it's out of left field. I'll tell you in my life, I found this to be so profound here in the last couple of months in terms of the elevation of Jesus above others. And it's Thanksgiving. Now, I'm not talking about a meal in November, and I'm not talking about the holiday. I'm talking about the daily practice of being thankful and grateful of all that God does. C.J. Mahaney, in his book on humility, speaks at length about uh, Thanksgiving. In fact, let me read to you here. This is a longer quote. I want to read this to you. Uh, He says this. He says, Thankfulness, Michael Ramsey reminds us, is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. That's exactly right, and we want to cultivate that soil. So from the outset of the day, I want to greet my Savior with gratitude, not grumbling. It was said of Matthew Henry that he, quote, was an alert and thankful observer of answered prayer. His gratitude for God's mercies was constantly sweetening his spirit, and he would often invite others to join him in giving thanks. 
If you crossed Matthew Henry's path, you would quickly realize that there was someone taking thankful notice of all that God was doing for him and was doing so in an attractively joyful way, jo joyful way that was infectious. How I want that to be also be a description of me. Is this your desire as well? He goes on, he says this, what would happen if I crossed your path tomorrow morning? Would I encounter someone who was an alert and thankful observer of answered prayer? Someone who in a pronounced way was grateful for God's many mercies? We also want to continue throughout the day expressing gratefulness for the innumerable manifestations of God's grace. It's as if God is placing sticky notes in our lives as daily reminders of his presence and provision. They're everywhere. My question is, is do we notice them? They are everywhere. If we will open our eyes, they are everywhere. He continues, how alert and perceptive of them are you? Are you a thankful observer of the countless indications of his provision, his presence, his kindness, and his grace? An ungrateful person is a proud person. If I'm ungrateful, I'm arrogant. And if I'm arrogant, I need to remember God doesn't sympathize with me in that arrogance. He is opposed to the proud. But each of us recognize every day that whatever grace we receive from God is so much more than we're worthy of and indescribably better than the hell we deserve. Are we thankful for all that God is doing? And do we even notice it? I've shared about um, this practice that my mom has done for a number of years. She has this thankful list. And at the beginning of the year, she just, she takes notebook paper. She tapes it right by the front entrance of the door. And she just records things that she's thankful for. And by the end of the year, the thing's six, seven, eight feet tall. And as kids, we, <laughs> sounds so bad now, but as kids, it, it was funnier if you lived in the house, apparently. We would mock my mom relentlessly because probably 90% of the things on that thankful list were totally innocuous. I saw a bluebird. I found a quarter. It rained yesterday. I mean, just these innocuous, simple, mundane things. And yet I think she tapped into the very thing that Mahaney was talking about there. She saw the manifestations of God everywhere. Jesus was greatly elevated in her life because she could see his hand in everything that was going on. And now I look back and I, I go, man, I wish I would have locked into that sooner. As we begin to be thankful, right, as we begin to identify these things, and we begin to find so many things that honestly, if we would just pay attention to be thankful for, then it leads to worship. When I'm thankful, I worship. When I worship, I'm thankful. Those two things are tied to each other. When I recognize all that God is doing, I can't help but worship him. And when I worship God, I can't help but notice what he's doing. It's a, it's a great thing when they work together. Of course, when you don't do those things, just the inverse happens. And we fail to be thankful, we fail to worship, and we fail to elevate Jesus above all things. A response to his glory, the elevation of Jesus above others. Notice this secondly. Look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I just wrote this down in terms of a response that you and I would have a sense of awe before God. That we would have a, this, this healthy sense of awe before God. I mean, fear, fear is actually a common response in the scriptures when God chooses to reveal himself in manner similar to this. It's what Isaiah did in that great throne room vision. Woe is me for I'm ruined. Ezekiel on his face. Remember John in Revelation 1? Fell down as though dead. 
See, there's this very real sense, at least in the scriptures, there's this very real sense that when you're in the presence of God, that it's not necessarily delightful or pleasurable. Um, it's actually terrifying or there's this sense of holy awe. Why? Because the contrast, the sharp contrast of my sinfulness to God's holiness is incredibly pronounced. I think that's part of what happened on the mountain. I, th I think when Jesus was like, check it out. I think if you were to ask Peter, James, or John, that's what they would tell you about. They would tell you about the fear, the recognition of their sinfulness, to, to realize just how, how distinctly different God was from them. See, it's imperative, loved ones, that we have a healthy view of God's holiness. Do I possess a sense of awe of God? Is God great? Is he supreme? Is he exalted? Or is he just another guy? Maybe a better guy, but just another guy. The sense of awe before God. So we see Jesus revealing his glory. We see our response to glory. And then we see that God affirms Jesus' glory in verse 7. God himself now affirms the glory of Jesus. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Similar to what we saw back in chapter 1. Except there in chapter 1, that affirmation was for Jesus. This affirmation here is for the disciples. It's for these guys to know who this guy is and what's really going on. God says really two things here. One, this is my beloved son. It's not just a great guy. Not just an above average prophet. Not just a miracle worker. <clears throat> He's saying, this is God himself. This is God himself right here in the flesh. Are you aware of that? Further, I think that the uniqueness of Jesus, even with Moses and Elijah present, present, cannot be missed. This is my beloved son. And then God says this. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's the same thing Moses said back in Deuteronomy 18, except here it carries just a little bit more weight, don't you think? I mean, it's one thing for Moses to say it, but it's a whole other thing for God the Father himself to say, better listen to this guy. Okay, well, what, what is it that we're to listen to him about? Well, in the immediate context, we're to listen to him <clears throat> with respect to the fact that he's the suffering Messiah, that he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die back in 831, uh, that he's the Savior and the Son of Man in 838, that in 99, when he tells them to be silent about these things until he's risen from the dead, that we're to listen to him on these things. But in a broader sense, that we're to listen to him in all things. That whatever God has told us, whatever God has commanded us, that we would listen to him with respect to those things. Do you listen to what God has to say to you? Let me ask you this. Whose voice is the loudest voice in your life? Maybe it's your own. Maybe it's your spouse's. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's one of your parents. It should be should be God. But I understand the reality for, for many of us that at various seasons and times in our life, that's just simply not the case. And yet what, what God is telling us is you better listen to him and you better listen to him above all others. Who is the primary voice in your life? Who is the loudest voice in your life? Who has the platform to speak into your life? Is Jesus the loudest? Is he first? Is he primary? And if not, why not? 
God affirming Jesus' glory, that we would listen to him. And then notice in verse 8, I mean, as quickly as they came, they were gone, right? Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I mean, what was that moment like? It's kind of like the end of everything. And what just happened? Well, I think something very prominent happened in the disappearance of Moses and Elijah. And it's this. It's the preeminence of Jesus above all others. Uh, to be preeminent, it's another word for superior, supreme. All right, but it's a biblical term. He's preeminent. And you might go, well, Mike, that, that phrase is kind of redundant. It's the point. That Jesus is superior in being superior above all others. You, you, can't, you can't overemphasize the supremacy or the superiority of Jesus. You can't do it. And so, right, in, in a moment, Moses and Elijah show up. And, and whether they're there for 30 seconds or two hours, we, we don't know. Right, but they're there and then they're gone. But what about Jesus? Well, he was there before they showed up and he's still there after they've left. In fact, I find something incredibly profound with those last two words of verse 8. Look what it says. Jesus only. Jesus only. See, because the good news is tied to Jesus only. The gospel is about Jesus only. Because it's only Jesus who saves. It's only Jesus who heals. It's only Jesus who forgives. It's only Jesus who restores. It's only Jesus who loves. It's only Jesus who moves. It's him and him alone. When you think of the preeminence of Jesus, you think of the supremacy of Jesus, you cannot, listen, you cannot think of him as greater than he actually is. Do you realize that? You can't overthink or outthink the greatness of God. You can't do it. Now, we can, we can do it with people, Right? Uh, this happens with people. You might meet someone like, this guy is awesome. He's so incredible. He knows so much. He's so cool. And then what happens? You spend some time with that guy and, and you find yourself saying something like this to your wife. Yeah, he's all right. He's decent. He's a good guy. See, because we can overemphasize the goodness of someone else. You can't overemphasize the goodness of God. In fact, your greatest, highest, most righteous, loftiest thoughts and ideas and concepts of God and Christ, listen to me, they're insufficient. They lack. They're not high enough. They're not good enough. They're not righteous enough because you cannot emphasize enough the greatness of Jesus. It's him and him alone who's left. I think part of what Mark is pointing us to here is the, the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus. You have the glory of Jesus, that we would behold his glory. And this scene just revolving all around what he has done. And then the stark contrast as they start coming down the mountain. And so notice this secondly. Verses 9 through 13, I just wrote this down, that we would embrace the road of suffering that leads to glory. That we would embrace the road of suffering that leads to glory. As they start coming down the mountain, Jesus is telling them, hey, until I've risen from the dead, don't share any of this with anybody. I need you to sit on this. I need you to hold on to this. I need you to not share this. 
And it's most likely that what Jesus had in mind here was he did not want a premature uh, messianic expectation to begin to run through uh, the crowds because right, even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand the type of Messiah that he was. And so he's holding on to that until they get to the cross. But this road of suffering, I mean, these two scenes are so stark from each other. Suffering being the vehicle that will move Jesus to ultimate glory as he travels to and through the cross. So let's look at verse 9 through 13 here for just a moment. And first of all, you have to understand, as we look at this, the disciples are really high on the person of Jesus in terms of this guy's really smart and he's doing some really cool things and the healings are awesome and I, we love how he's sticking it to the religious leaders and, and in their mind, we're going to get the Romans. And, but it was incomprehensible to them that Jesus' glory was going to be realized through the cross. They couldn't see it, couldn't get it, couldn't wrap their minds around it. They, they just couldn't, couldn't get to that place. And so they're coming down the mountain and Jesus tells them, don't say anything about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Verse 10 So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I think Mark's saying they still didn't get it. And so then they ask him a question, verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And I love his response. Hey, why did Elijah come? Yes, he comes. That's what Jesus starts by saying. He doesn't answer their question. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he moves away from that and he starts talking about the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And how is it written that the Son of Man, or of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Yep, Elijah comes. Son of Man suffered, treated with contempt. And then he comes back to Elijah. But I tell you that Elijah has come. Again, he doesn't answer their question. Yes, he comes. Oh, he has come. See, I think the why is in between. And then he says this, they did to him whatever they pleased as it's written of him. See, part of what Jesus is, is saying to them is, and we know that Elijah is John the Baptist. When you read the other transfiguration accounts, we know that he's speaking about John the Baptist. And part of what Jesus is saying is, in the same way that they did to Elijah whatever they wanted to do, that's what they're going to do to me. You guys get it? Do you see it? Are you aware of it? That's what he's, he, he's trying to teach them with respect to these two things. That Elijah has in fact come and that the Son of Man is, is going to suffer and be treated with contempt. That in the same way that John the Baptist was beheaded, I'm going to lay down my life as well. Now here's the implication. Here, here's where it gets um, real life for you and I. In the same way that Jesus rode to glory, runs through, travels through, Uh, moves along suffering. Your road, my road, our road to glory in eternity with him will move through suffering. Get that? Do you understand that? Because there's no shortage of false gospels out there that exist that tell you that Jesus is nothing more than a cosmic genie or a cosmic vending machine that dispenses good things to us, owes us good things, and will never make life hard or difficult. And, and maybe even some of you were pitched or sold some gospel that if you will just say this prayer, then Jesus will make you happy and he'll give you everything you want when nothing in the scriptures even comes close to telling us that. It tells us just the opposite of that. 
You won't find anything in the scripture that says, if you follow Jesus, life will be easy. But we can go to hundreds, hundreds of places with great clarity and say, listen, if you're going to follow him, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's, it's going to be arduous. There's going to be great sacrifices. It's going to cost you. You're going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. In fact, this week, Pastor Stephan and I, we were talking about this passage, talking about this very thing of suffering, and we just kind of going back and forth. We were trying to find, is there anyone in the scriptures, is there anyone in the scriptures that followed God well and didn't suffer? We thought of one. It's a dude named Enoch. Shows up in the first few chapters of Genesis. Now here's what we got to know about Enoch. There's an entire line in the scriptures devoted to him. And Enoch walked with God and then he was not. We don't know anything about his life outside of the fact that he just poof, disappeared, was with God. Now you could make the case, well, it doesn't say that he suffered, right? But that argument from silence is going to struggle when every other person in the scriptures suffered. I'm willing to bet everything that Enoch suffered too. I might be wrong. We're not going to find out till eternity, and then I won't care. You can have all my stuff here. Don't care. All right? But I'm willing to bet, <clears throat> I'm willing to bet that his lot in life was no different than everyone else. You got to read Hebrews chapter 11, right? The great chapter of faith and all these guys. And what does it talk about? Over and over and over again. It talks about their suffering. In fact, I think, I think uh, verse 24 and 25 best capture what's happening there. Describing Moses, of all people, it says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if someone preached to you a false gospel. I am sorry if you were sold some heresy that following Jesus is a walk in the park and everything's great. Yes, he spares us from, his, from, from God's wrath. Yes, he brings incredible love and mercy and grace. Yes, there's peace and joy and comfort. I'm not saying it's always miserable. I don't want you to hear that either. But I don't want anyone walking out of here today going, hey, if I follow Jesus, life will always be easy. It's not here. It's simply not in the text. In fact, it's not even close to being in the text. Yes, glory is coming, loved ones. What the disciples couldn't see and what sometimes we fail to see is it's not immediate. In the same way that Jesus will travel through the cross, we too will travel through the cross and on the other side of eternity experience that ultimate glory. Now there's a fascinating connection in Mark 9 uh, both with the structure and the content with what we see in Colossians 1. In fact, I'd encourage you to flip over to Colossians 1 real quick. I want you to see this. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <clears throat> Colossians 1 is a great chapter for a lot of things, uh, not the least of which is the glory and preeminence of Jesus. In fact, in verses 15 through 20, uh, Paul uh, writes about the fact that Jesus is just far above all others. Some of the highest, loftiest writing we have about uh, the supremacy of Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 21 through 23 talks about uh, how we are, we're alienated from God, but then reconciled back to him and what that looks like in our daily living. And I want to focus in starting in verse 24. And I want you to see what Paul says here. <clears throat> Keep in mind, he's just talked about the glory of God. 
right? The glory of Jesus preceded this. It's the exact same structure we see in Mark 9. And then he says this in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And I'll tell you that there's a lot of possible interpretations of what exactly is going on here. We know that Christ lacked in nothing and certainly didn't lack in afflictions, but it would almost seem to say that part of what Paul is, is pushing here is there's some sort of suffering, some sort of affliction that we participate in with Christ as a part of his glory. He goes on, he says this in verse 25 and following, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. See, here it is again. The hope of glory. There's a connection in Colossians 1 between suffering and glory, afflictions and glory. It's the same thing we see in the transfiguration. Sometimes in our mind, it's hard to equate those two things. How can you suffer and there be glory? How can there be affliction and glory? And yet, repeatedly in the scriptures, we see that very same thing. Much like we talked about last week with respect to this, that we would have an eternal focus Right, that, that my life is bigger than what's right in front of me, but not, not just in the broader sense of eternity, but in the very specific sense around the person of God, the person of Jesus, that, that our longing to see him and his glory and the fulfillment of that would come to fruition, that, that we would embrace the, the sin-soaked, sin-scarred world that we live in, and that we would come to say, as the author of 2 Corinthians 4 uh, said, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, what's right in front of you, I don't, I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be calloused. I don't, I don't want to be um, innocuous to the reality that some of you, life is incredibly difficult right now. The suffering and the turmoil and the pain is intense. I'm not trying to pretend that that's not real. What I'm trying to say is what the scriptures tell us is it's like that. And then an eternity of glory. Again, far too often we're short-sighted. And so th this idea of, okay, embrace the road of suffering that leads to glory, that, that sounds miserable. Let me just close with this thought. That we would hope, that we would hope in suffering. What are you talking about? I'm talking about this. I'm talking about the fact that our suffering is temporal. It won't last forever. It has a definitive end. It's finite. There will come a point in time where suffering will cease. Not just for you. Not just decrease. Not just be minimized. Gone forever. Put your hope in that. You put your hope in the fact that Jesus once and for all will conquer all of sin and all of the suffering and strife and maladies that come with it. You put your hope in the fact that one day, one day, the broken, rebellious, hardened, sinful men and women that we are 
will be fully transformed, fully changed, perfect before our perfect God. So I'm not cold, I'm not callous, I'm not ignorant to the suffering and the pain that's in front of so many of you. What I'm telling you is what the scriptures tell us, that we would put our hope, not hope in suffering for the sake of suffering, but we put our hope in that because we know one day Jesus is going to conquer it all. And that's really what we're hoping in, is that we're hoping in him. And that as he does this, he gets greater and mightier. God, help us that we would behold the glory of God that we would be overcome by that, that we would long for the fullness of that, but also understanding that the road in front of us, the road in front of us is a road of suffering. And we cling to the glory of Jesus to sustain us in that and through that until the day that we find ourselves on the other side in the fullness of his glory. Let's pray.